0: Hello and welcome to another March edition of the Evolution Medicine Podcast with Joe Alcock and Coffee Brown. So today is the first day of spring winds, at least here in New Mexico. This is a feature of our local geography.
1: I always call it the DFH, the
0: Daily Adjective
1: Hurricane. My car got sandblasted as I was driving over here. The first year I was here, we had a barn and I didn't know about the DFH We didn't secure the doors enough, and it ripped the doors
0: off in one day. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, I believe it. So why do you suppose it is that wind is associated with anxiety and poor mood? Well, that is interesting. I can think of a couple of reasons. Uh, One
1: may be that wind is a harbinger of changing weather. And so change of any kind makes a lot of people anxious, even though we're going to head from winter into spring. And for us, it'll be a change from cold to nicer for a while. Right. It still change, and change is enough to freak a lot of people out Another reason might be that wind makes sounds And is stimulating in other ways It brushes against your skin, it blows grit in your eyes and so forth And so a lot of people get anxious when they get more stimulant. Right, makes people feel bad Oh, well, last year yanked a chunk of my roof off I mean, I have good reasons to be anxious when it's this windy It does actual, like, need repairs damage to, to the various places I've lived in That's true yeah, so the wind here is pretty spectacular. When I was a kid in Tucson, we saw dust devils all the time. But I've never lived in a place that had seasons of daily, just short of hurricanes like we do here. I thought they called them haboobs. Is that the name of it,
0: haboobs? Uh, the, Can the, you uh, say that on the radio? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> the the dust storms that happen in Arizona. Oh, I don't know. I called them dust storms. Oh, a couple of storms. years ago, the Arizona Republic, which is the Phoenix newspaper, had a on their headline something about a haboob. And it's, huh. a, you know, it's an Arabic word. Apparently it's the correct meteorological term for these really windy conditions with lots of dust in the air. Well, I've long used the Arabic word zephyr to refer
1: to a, a more gentle, warm wind. Yeah, well, people like zephyrs. I'm not like otherwise them. musical, but I like to play yeah. my zither in the zephyr. As one might. Once I got my zither caught in my zipper
0: in a zephyr. <laughs> I don't want to explain how that happened. Right. Perhaps I'm sharing too much. Apparently some of the uh, readership of the Arizona Republic got very upset with the use of this Arabic word. This is after Oh, novel, because it's Arabic, because right? Because it's
1: Arabic, yeah. So, actually, it's not a tangent. Mm-hmm. Today's topic is about things like cognitive biases and the hardwired errors in our brain, which fascinates me that those exist. So here's an example of one. This has been done multiple times. You show people a picture of a pizza on one side, or a hamburger, and on the other side, a person wearing uh, Arabic attire... And you say, which one scares you more? And people point to the Arab every time. The fact is most Americans will die of atherosclerosis. The hamburger is the far more dangerous thing in that picture. But it's not dramatic and scary. We have this bias that dramatic things that are rare, like shark attacks, scare us more than common things that really kill lots and lots of us. Consider the numbers for a second. If we say that there were as many as a thousand terrorist attempts against the U.S. in the last decade, and I don't think it's that high, but let's take that number. And let's say every single one of them was an Arab Muslim extremist, which is not true. But imagine that it were true. In this fictional story, a thousand Muslim extremists, way more than the real world, has thrown at us over that same period of time. There's almost four billion Muslims in the world. So as a class exercise, just yesterday, we divided this out, and it turns out it's 0.70s, 0.25% of Muslims would have been involved in terrorist activities in that exaggerated scenario. Meaning the chance that the next Arab you meet is going to try to harm you is less than the chance that you will fall out of an airplane, into the water, be bitten by a
0: shark, and get hit by lightning on the way to shore. Well said. I suppose a naive view, you'd think that over time evolution would hone our sensory systems and our cognition in a way to more correctly assess the universe and its risks. Is that the case? I like this topic for today because it kind of highlights
1: a trend difference between us. Neither of us is absolute, but you tend to see evolution as accomplishing its goals, uh, to speak teleologically. Right. You tend to see evolution as having done a good job. Whereas I tend to see evolution as a series of kludges. And the truth is somewhere in between, of course. And depending on what topic we're talking about, it's more over here or more over there. All right. But broadly speaking, I tend to be the clutch guy and you tend to be the evolution
0: works guy. True. It's interesting that you bring that up. And when I think about it, I think you're, you're basically right. Not that I don't think that there are kludges and bad design decisions that have been the result of evolution. But I think the low-hanging fruit, the areas for improvement in terms of medicine, have to do with paying more attention to what the body gets right. So that is actually not an area we yeah. differ. I think any time you can work with the body's
1: natural systems, do not hear me saying natural is better. Scorpions are natural, arsenic is natural, lightning is natural. I don't want any of those in my house. The naturalistic policy. Right, so I don't want to go quite right. that direction. Right. But whenever you can, optimize the body's systems to heal itself almost without exception, I think that's better than using pharmacology and surgery and things like that. We get involved, ideally, when people have done everything right and still nature catches up with them, as it will with everybody sooner or later except me. So one of my mantras is that nature is an idiot savant. I don't see nature as a genius. I see her as an idiot savant. Her brilliant moments are brilliant, but her kludges are kludgy.
0: So is this a feature or a bug that our brains lie to us? Well, our brains do lie to us. We deceive ourselves, right? Isn't that that part of it? And we also deceive others. And the two may be connected. Well, I plan to argue largely
1: against the Kludge hypothesis today. Mm. That is, I'm going to present a number of arguments of why these might be features rather than bugs. And also this topic interests me because I can hardly say this strongly enough. I actually have a series of lectures around this, this topic, cognitive illusions and so forth, and cognitive biases. And for some reason, people imagine because I'm talking about this, I think I'm immune to it. No, part of the reason this fascinates me is that knowing about it doesn't make me bulletproof to it. Well, give, give me an example. I, I have illusions about the world that I can't account for, I can't fend off, because if I knew what they were, I'd be, I'd be accounting for them. Although, we'll talk about some mitigation strategies. But the point is, I'm aware that some of my beliefs about the world are functions of cognitive biases the ones I'm aware of, I tackle, but I'm never going to be aware of them all. It just doesn't work that way. The evidence around me is really abundant that humans are not rational. In fact, one of the uh, cornerstones of behavioral economics is that the rational consumer is a is a fairy tale. It's a winged
0: unicorn. And if I understand, and believe me, I'm no economist, that viewpoint kind of supplants the previous idea, which is that we are rational actors in an economic world.
1: Correct. And therefore, our ideas about economics assumed a population that behaves on the whole rationally. And that is something I really want to believe. I tend to grasp at evidence that that's true. But the evidence in the world around me is overwhelming that we are very far from rational. I have to tell you that I can't resist a snicker every time I hear the name Homo sapiens. First of all, who would name themselves? Homo sapiens. Can I be introduced from now on as Coffee the Handsome or Coffee the Intelligent? Because asking you that is roughly the same as our species naming itself Homo sapien. Homo
0: immodest would have been a good choice. Homo narcissans. The paper that you sent me suggests that we, we individuals, we tend to have an inflated sense of self, that we think we are better looking better than average, and we think that we have skills and intelligence which exceeds reality. On multiple... We can't all be from Lake uh, Wobegon. Yeah, where all the men are above average and all the women are beautiful, right? So multiple
1: surveys have shown that like 90% of us think we're above average, which (laughs) clearly cannot be true. I think wanting to know the truth, seeking truth, is like this super important thing that everybody should be fully committed to. And, And yet I've had my heart broken by the truth a few times now. I I knew that some men treated women very badly, but I drastically underestimated how many of us and how badly. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I am a sadder person for having, if not a correct, at least a more correct understanding of just how rotten men are to women now. So did it do me any favors to learn the truth? I mean, the, the women who are friends of mine are like, yeah, good for you. You understand now. And I'm cr- like crying myself to sleep every night, wondering if I'm better off in any material way. You yeah. know, so so the point is, does truth always benefit us? And we're going to look today at some ways in which falsehood may benefit us. Now, one of the things I realized as I was prepping for this is that we need to differentiate between illusion and delusion. Initially, when I proposed this to you, I was thinking about illusion, the mm-hmm. idea that there are errors in the way that we process information in the world that lead us to misunderstand aspects of it. For example availability bias, thats something I've thought about recently seems like a more credible explanation today than something I haven't thought about for a long time. Sure, That's just a mechanical, it's just the way our, our hardware is designed because it was built up in a world of heuristics, not a world of algorithms. And you and I who live in a more scientific academic world would like it to be a world of algorithms. It's never fully going to be, but we sort of nudge it in that direction.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Delusions, on the other hand, are are things that we believe about the world that really we could get more correct information on. We choose to believe falsehoods about the world. And the paper I wound up using as a, um, a skeleton for today's talk emphasizes delusion rather than illusion. And that paper, by the way, just to give credit where credit is due, the Evolution in Psychology of Self-Deception by von Hippel and Trivers. And this was in uh, Behavioral Brain Science, February of 2011. Bob
0: Trivers is a giant in evolutionary biology. He laid out the groundwork for reciprocal altruism, and he also laid a theoretic outline for why it is that parents shouldn't always get along with their children. So, parent offspring conflict, which is important. And then, interesting because I'm going to invoke that here too yeah, he in al- a different context. He's, he's also worked on some of the intragenomic conflicts that can happen that could explain certain diseases of pregnancy. Trevor's is the guy that came up with a lot of this. Very interesting guy. He's still around, he's still publishing. And the paper that you sent me this morning was written by him. He's looking at self-deception, whereas I originally had been thinking about illusion. It turns out we're going to be sort of touching on both of them today. But in both cases, the representation of the world, or what we believe, is inaccurate. And it's inaccurate in a perhaps predictable way. It just feels wrong to me that misunderstanding the world could sometimes
1: be better than understanding it correctly. What are my chances?
0: Self-deception, Jim (laughs) Carrey, Dumb and Dumber. Now, I
1: actually have not seen that movie, but I'm guessing he gets the girl in the end, right? Well, if he does get the girl in the end, it will be because he made that leap. Right. And that is one of the arguments in favor of Mm self-delusion, is that if you thought about the odds realistically, you wouldn't take the shot, you wouldn't go for Mary. But he does, because he's like, one in a million, well, that's a chance, isn't it? Right. And in fact, there is apparently abundant evidence that... Pessimists are better at estimating odds, but optimists are better at surviving adversity. And this is so. Why are there any pessimists in the world? Well, one strategy is to avoid risk in the first place, and pessimists are better at that than optimists. Another strategy is to survive adversity, and optimists are better at that than pessimists. You can be so far toward the optimism side that it's actually a a diagnosable illness, Mm. and you can be so pessimistic, we just call that depression, right? Right. Depression and anxiety. Uh, But most of us are nearer the middle. My preferred strategy, and I don't know, cognitive bias, right? I don't know how close I am Mm. to my ideal, but my ideal for myself is that I see the world as more like a checkerboard with lots of dark squares where you die and white squares where something good happens. And my job is to try to stay in the white squares. But I don't see the world as being more dark or more light. I see it as being densely
0: populated with both kinds of squares. Yeah. It makes me think about how in childhood development, young kids tend to be relatively accepting of strangers, but then when they go through toddler years and then later on, they become fearful of Mm -hmm. other adults, and rightly so. But there are some disorders in which that stranger danger never really develops. And those kids are at huge risk for being exploited or have bad things happen to them. Well, and in fact, con artists know how to play on our uh,
1: desire to have relationships and to live within a social context and so forth. Uh, There was an article in NPR a few years ago about an utterly adorable little girl who, as soon as she meets you, she's like, I love you. And she wants to hug you and stuff. She's Mm -hmm. six or eight at the time of the story. Yeah. Her parents are like, this is great. She's the most charming girl in the world. But when she's 16 and doing this, oh, my God. Or even 10 or 11. Yeah. That's uh, seriously bad news. I didn't want to go there, but okay. Um, So clearly, this is actually disastrous for her. She will need guardianship all of her life. And her problem is that she just makes oxytocin constantly. It it doesn't require the same triggers Mm. and the same threshold, the burden of proof, social proof, that the rest of us would need to form oxytocin towards someone. On the other hand, there are people who just simply cannot form or at least sustain oxytocin toward other people. They can't form lasting, reciprocal, mutually caring and respectful relationships. And I I think that's even sadder. I mean, both of them are disasters. If You want to have the adaptability to be able to jump
0: either way. Yeah, but it seems like if you're going to have a default erring on the side of being more, we'll say, pessimistic in this instance and not trusting of other people would be beneficial. Interesting you say that because, and I'm not
1: stating that you're wrong, Mm -hmm. but presently I'm arguing the other strategy. I'm trying to start this challenging communications club right now. Mm -hmm. And one of my theses is, if you do something that makes me uncomfortable, but I assume you're a good guy who had a bad moment, then we might still wind up friends or colleagues or work together successfully. Right. But if I assume you're just a jerk and maybe even call you out on it, we probably never will form a working relationship. Mm -hmm. So I feel that I lose more by leaping to the conclusion that you're a bad person than by withholding judgment over one or two glitches until you show a consistent pattern. And I'm willing to take the risk that I could have identified you as a malignant person to hang around earlier, and I'll get burned. I'll get my fingers burned because I didn't run away. Some people choose the risk-averse approach, but... I feel like jerks are going to identify themselves if you give them a little time, whereas even the best people I know occasionally slip, occasionally commit some faux pas, meaning
0: to or not. But sometimes you end up hiring these people or you accept them into your program and then you're stuck with them. Aye, aye, that's true.
1: Well, we look at that with students that we try to admit, say, in medical school. Right. If you have too high of a bar of entry you can keep some people out who would have been terrific doctors, and you cheat them and their patients of the career they would have had. But if your bar is too low, you can bring some monsters in and damage the profession. Mm-hmm. So you, And you're never going to get uh, perfect sensitivity and specificity. You're always going to have some overlap there. The two circles are going to overlap. There's going to be some people who just make a good show on recruiting day who turned out not to be everything you hoped
0: for. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good encapsulation of the problem when we're trying to make an assessment about the world, or about other people in the world, that there's a signaler receiver relationship. They can get screwed up sometimes, and we may not be able to assess the actual motives or realistic expectations about about that other person. And high-performing sociopaths learn to project the
1: persona that the person they're talking to needs to see. In fact, uh, a long time ago, I had the misfortune of running into a couple of sociopaths who created some serious headaches for me. But I learned from those experiences that the way to recognize a sociopath is to watch how they treat other people. When they're talking to me, they're exactly who I need them to be. Hmm. So the analogy I often use is this, what what shape do you see? It's
0: holding up a highlighter pen. So I see a end on end, it looks quite round to me.
1: Yeah, it looks like a circle,
0: right? Yeah. But if you can look at it from the side, it looks like that. Yeah, so then it becomes
1: elongated, looks like an ordinary pen. Yeah, or a a rectangle or a cylinder. People who are what we would say authentic, they look the same from every perspective. Sure, they alter their behavior a little bit contextually, but they're the same person from every perspective. But sociopaths are dramatically different people when they're talking to you than when they're talking to the person next to you. And that has turned out to be a very useful way of unmasking them because their job, their life skill is to be who you need them to be. And they've had more
0: practice at that than you've had it unmasking them. Okay, so again, if that's a useful strategy to be a sociopath and they get the things that they want out of people, why isn't everybody a sociopath?
1: Well, because sociopaths get discovered over time and ostracized or shunned in smaller societies until they l- at least learn to correct their behaviors. They'll never correct their attitude. They'll always behave, betray the tribe if they think it's in their best interest. Yeah. But uh, within limited context, you can at least correct your behaviors in a smaller group. In a larger group, they just move on and start over after they've burned everything locally. And that
0: is the pattern of sociopaths. They, they are scorched earth lives. Some strategies are, they're frequency dependent, so it may be a useful strategy as long as it's a rare strategy. The other career path for sociopaths is CEO.
1: Right. Know. So they, get, they may get hundreds or of president. millions, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars or become president. The price there would be high to someone like you and me because you have to look yourself in the eye when you shave, right? Mm-hmm. But one of the putative advantages of self-delusion is that you don't suffer the consequences of understanding who you really are. Right. So there's a lot of psychic pain involved in accepting that we fall short of our aspirations. In fact, my personal life strategy is I self-identify as someone who is aspirational. I'm always working toward this ideal in my mind. I don't self-identify as being that ideal because I know that whenever it's revealed to me that I'm not there, I'll feel horrible. Instead, I self-identify as striving toward that ideal. That's a bar I can hit every day. I would say that, to me, would, would look like a positive trait, but I'm not sure how common that life strategy is. I'm just pointing out an example of a workaround for the fact that we're built this way. Yeah. Have you heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? Yes. The Dunning-Kruger effect is the idea that you may be so incompetent, you don't know you're incompetent. You actually think you're good at something that everybody else knows you're bad at. And your lack of insight or your lack of awareness of what good at this thing would actually be is enough that you think you're great at it. Yeah. We can talk about this all day long like we're above it, but we're not. we, We share
0: these traits. So again, the evolutionary biologist... Armchair evolutionary psychologist in me would, would say, Well, if the Dunning Kruger effect is so common, is that because it's an evolved trait? Let us see. The primary
1: thrust of the article that, that I mentioned is that we delude ourselves in order to delude others. Now, I put that on a much longer list, but this article focused on that as the uh, evolutionary reason for self-deception. If I'm going to lie to you, which clearly has some evolutionary advantages, in the land of the Mm -hmm. blind, the one-eyed man is king, right? Mm -hmm. The best way for me to sell that lie to you is to sell it to myself first so I don't have adrenaline, I don't look nervous, I don't have the cognitive overload of trying to compare what I know is the real story with the one I want you to believe and so on. There are a lot of tells that are involved in lying
0: that go away if I believe my own story. So in this paper, The Evolution and Psychology of Self-Deception, it goes into this idea that there are cues of when, when we're being deceived and there are things that we can pick up on, but it also makes the point that people are pretty bad at, at that. People are bad at detecting liars and cheats. This article goes into that in great mm-hmm. detail and argues the case
1: that we're actually way better at that, at deceiving, uh, detecting lies than the studies give us credit for. For example, the studies tend to involve people like you and me looking at videos of liars and trying to figure out who's lying. But in the real world, we would be interacting with them, testing their story. Mm -hmm. Um, In the studies, these are strangers. But in the real world, it's usually someone we have some knowledge of. And so when their behaviors are altered, we can dial into that better. In the studies, we just see somebody lying about what they did yesterday. In the real world, we can do some fact-checking really you saw mary yesterday how do you like mary's new red hair oh i love mary's new red hair ha mary's blonde these days you're lying you know that those kinds of things happen in the real world is that how you talk to people <laughs> that's always how i talk to people yeah you know it's like a classic scene from every espionage movie you've ever mm-hmm. seen oh so you worked with so-and-so yeah how is he mm-hmm. these days oh well, he's not very good he's dead oh is I that guess you knew is that, that the
0: purpose of small talk
1: uh, it is part of the purpose of small talk, is to reality test each other. Right. Small talk has many, many purposes. Now, an argument somewhat in favor of, uh, uh, of an evolutionary approach to this is that we know for a fact that animals lie and deceive each other in a number of contexts. Uh, birds that hide food have been observed to fake hide food when other birds are watching them and wait till the other bird is distracted before they really
0: hide the food. Squirrels have been observed to do the same thing. Uh apes and sometimes in the zoo, there's inter, interspecific de, uh, deception. So interspecies. Interspecies, deception. yeah. So, for instance, when the uh, you've seen a mockingbird pretend to have a broken wing?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like, well, actually, uh, I'm from Arizona, and uh, quails and roadrunners do that a lot right. if you get too near their nest. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of examples. And, of course, well, this wouldn't be a psychological thing, but... Sort of in parallel, there are many animals that mimic other animals in their appearance or coloration and things to look more dangerous than they are. Sure. Now, that's not a cognitive uh, function, but that it can evolve in that way suggests that it could evolve cognitively as well. I I see it as a pretty close parallel. So lots of bluffing then. Yeah, bluffing is an important thing in nature. Look at the frilled lizard. Mm. It fans out a big frill on either side of its head to look bigger and fiercer than it is. So that the other animal will run away, thinking I it's I thought they a just wanted larger to sex here. Or cats puffing up their fur, for example. And you mm-hmm. see humans do it, too. One of the common human reflexes is to go up on the balls of our
0: feet. When we get anxious, it makes us look a little taller. Fascinating. Never thought about that. So we have a dog with relatively short hair. Uh-huh. And, you know, dogs that get their hackles up, that puff out their fur. The only place where that happens in our dog is, is a little spot on its tail, this little ball that will appear on its tail. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's the only way that we know that the dog is getting worked up. You know, we we get goosebumps when
1: we're anxious. Mm -hmm. We get goosebumps when we're scared, but we also get goosebumps when we're anxious. And that's thought to be an evolutionary holdover from when we had a lot more hair. Mm -hmm. When we were cold, goosebumps made the hair stand out and trapped more warm air against our skin. When we were scared, goosebumps made the hair stand out and made us look bigger than we were. So what we're pointing out is parallels for this putative cognitive function. Another reason to deceive... So there's lots of reasons to deceive others. I might want you to think I'm tougher than I am so you don't engage in a fight with me that I might actually lose. Or I might want someone to think I'm richer or more successful or cooler than I am in order to get a reproductive opportunity. I might want other people to share resources with me, uh, for example, invest in my company that they wouldn't if they knew they were the only investor. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of times in life... both in the evolutionary world and in our modern world, which is a different world,
0: then it may be beneficial for us to lie to each other, at least in the short term. One of the things that the paper points out is that when we are deceived, if we become aware of it, it usually elicits a very angry response, that people get quite upset and unhappy with the other person.
1: And one that can be quite disproportionate. This has been uh, commented on by a number of psychologists. So you might lie to me about where you were yesterday when you missed an appointment. And my rage at you will be, I'm never talking to this guy again, which is way disproportionate to having missed an appointment yesterday. But the idea is that we want to make the consequences of lying so punitive that the other person doesn't lie to us because it's so risky for us to be deceived. Right. The exaggerated response is presumably a preventive measure, not just a retaliatory measure. But there are other reasons. For example, uh, to persevere when the odds are bad. We talked about that one already. Cludges I talked about already, but that was where I started with this. Both confidence and conformity can be reproductive strategies. Why do I mention that in this uh, context? If I lie to myself, I can feel more confident. And that turns out to work on other people. Now, I'm fascinated by a book called uh, Future Babble by Dan Gardner. And it's based on some work by Philip Tetlock. But the gist of it is, to my mind, a pretty compelling argument, that the more confident people are, the more likely they are to be wrong. It should be that when people tell us they know they're right, we should start backing away. But that's not what happens. I'm I'm sorry to go political here, but I think Trump is a great example of this. This guy will look right at a video of himself saying something and go, I never said that. And he says it with such confidence that people go, I guess he never said that. And you're looking at the video of him saying it. There's actually videos on YouTube of Trump debating himself, saying the opposite things. My sense of the guy is that he believes what he says. But is that, is that how we let him off the hook? No, no. It's how he convinces us. Yeah. He's so confident that we go, well, he must be right. Look how confident he is. But what Future Babel and Philip play, Tetlock show like us you're describing. is that we shouldn't think that. That right. that's actually wrong. A study a few years ago, the headline of it was, doctors who use the phrase, I am 100% sure, are correct 40% of the time. Right. Which is exactly what I would expect. 100%
0: guaranteed, not a guarantee.
1: Medicine is stochastic. What kind of fool would ever use a a phrase like that? Tip for those of you at know. We know that we live in a world of probabilities. Yeah, so here's a pro tip for those of you listening. If your doctor says, I'm 100% sure, be out of the office before he finishes the sentence.
0: So why is it that people will say, you know, that neurosurgeon, he's got a terrible bedside manner, he's abrupt, he's unpleasant, he throws objects in the operating room, but damn, is he a good surgeon. But boy, how does he seem sure of himself. That confidence that just rolls off that guy or gal, isn't that admirable? This meme, I think, exists both in culture and perhaps in medicine, that we excuse bad behavior because of perceived competence and status. This paper,
1: again, goes into that very thing in some detail. They talk about one of the strategies is you can have an explicit awareness of something and an implicit awareness of something that are at odds with each other. So Mm -hmm. implicitly, I know that you're quite a lot taller than me, almost a full head taller than me. But explicitly, I think of us as being the same size. I don't have that sense. If
0: you are shorter than me, I wasn't aware of it. Coffee has quite a presence, people.
1: (laughs) The thinking is, in, in this article, we tell ourselves an explicit story and buy into it and convince ourselves of it in order to be able to lie successfully. But we hold on to the implicit story at a below the threshold of consciousness level so that we don't actually behave in ways that will get us killed, that are so out of touch with reality that we'll die. And so that we have these two tracks going at once and they're at odds with each other. And the people in whom this trait is the strongest are the ones who manifest the most defensive behaviors of, I know that I'm right, and I'm super confident in myself, and they sort of exaggerate those traits. The more they have that dichotomy of worldview, the more they overpresent confidence about themselves. And this is the idea of the uh, defensively, I never make
0: mistakes kind of doctrine. Right. We don't spend too much time on this podcast talking about other podcasts, but there's one called Dr. Death that I really recommend. It's about Christopher Dunch. He's a former neurosurgeon. He's currently in jail as far as I know. He graduated from neurosurgery residency, opened up a practice in Dallas, and of the 40 or so odd patients that he operated on during the first two or three years of his his brief career, he maimed or killed virtually all of them. Oh my. Yeah. What a sad story. Part of the debate is, was he doing this deliberately? Or is he just impaired and unable to actually assess his own lack of skills? If he was aware, then it's murder and off to jail he goes. He is the one or one of very, very few physicians who have been accused actually of homicide and gross negligence, exceeding malpractice that have gone to the justice system and landed somebody in jail. Well, so one of the interesting spinoffs of this
1: concept of self-delusion is the intent of the person telling the lie matters to us. Mm -hmm. If I tell you something today that turns out to be false, Bob is getting promoted. And that turns out not to be true. If I told you that in order to keep you from putting in for the job, you'd be furious at me. But if it was a rumor that I didn't do my fact-checking on and I passed it along, you would probably forgive me for the error, even though it was carelessness on my part. But the rage that a an intentional lie generates is very different than the, than the irritation that a, uh, an accidental transmission of a falsehood would perpetuate. Right. So I put conformity down as an example of self-deception. A lot of people adopt the attitudes of their peer group in order to fit in with their peer group. Professionalism. It has a lot of advantages of doing that. You get more opportunities. Um... Need more reproductive opportunities,
0: more promotion opportunities, more social opportunities of every kind. But as an individual strategy of conformity, that can have both professional benefits, but as this paper argues, it can have reproductive benefits too. Mm-hmm.
1: People feel safer with someone whose actions they feel they can predict and anticipate. Someone who resembles people who have not harmed them in the past feels safer now. That's one of the reasons that there's a kind of... Uh, xenophobia that's built into us, It's hardwired into us. If you meet somebody tomorrow who looks drastically different than anyone you've ever seen before, you're likely to feel fear and apprehension. That doesn't make you a racist or a bigot, or at least... Necessarily. Necessarily. Um, it's a reflex that is, appears to actually be part of our, our uh, hardwiring. But if you don't take the trouble to try to account for that, Well, then now you're committing, I would say, an error. Sure. Um, So I see conformity as something people sometimes adopt and then try to convince themselves they're comfortable with when clearly they are not. And the 50s is really the epitome of that. The American middle-class lifestyle of the 50s was all about an appearance of conformity at any cost. And I would say proper British society is often seen in that light as well.
0: So we might expect that elites, certainly, and even when we think about the 50s, we're thinking about middle class, white America. Right. Right. But but that was white. American, the
1: middle class was white in the 50s. Yeah. Nice to see the 21st century roll around. Some things are improving, not everything. The self-serving bias is the notion that we, we tell ourselves a story that lets us off the hook, even when we wouldn't let other people off the hook. So you... If somebody cuts you off in traffic, that person is clearly an idiot. Who even gave them a license to drive? Why don't they test these people year by year? Is he too old? Maybe, maybe this guy has cataracts or something, right? But when I cut somebody off in traffic, well, they just don't understand that I didn't see them. They were in my blind corner. What were they doing in my blind corner anyway, right? The way it's more classically described is if I succeed, it's because I worked hard and I had talent. But if you succeed, well, there clearly was a large element of luck. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, when I fail, I was treated unfairly by society. It was bad damn luck. But if you fail, well, clearly, if you just tried harder or been more talented, you'd have
0: succeeded. Yeah. So a and self-serving bias, a self-aggrandizing bias, is really, really common. Yeah, it's a double standard that mm-hmm. but gives what's up us road rage. rage. We, don't give we had a recent case in the paper in which somebody was shot. Luckily for him, non-lethally after a road rage incident. This is where our psychology has really led to some, what I think of being as maladaptive behavior. We don't interact with people face-to-face in the way that we do when we're behind a car. And there's something strange going on there. We feel safe
1: inside that shell of metal, though clearly we are not. We've talked about this before. We evolved in a world that we have now evolved out of. When we changed the world to suit us, Mm -hmm. we were no longer suited to the world. And I don't know
0: why that isn't talked about a lot more. I think that's super important concept. The last thing I'll say about road rage is that my car has some self-driving features. So it will drive itself on the highway to a certain extent. That does piss people off sometimes because the car will do things that other people don't expect on occasion. That's interesting. But at least on the part of me sitting in my car, I'm perfectly relaxed. And I'm not going to get upset at anybody. So I think that I think the cure to road rage is to have a bunch of cars with autonomous features.
1: Oh, don't even get me started. In fact, we should do a podcast on that because it. it's
0: an interesting topic on its it own. It is, and it's in the news. All
1: right, let's do that next time. Let's, sure. Let's do um, the pros and cons of autonomous cars next
0: time. All right, in evolutionary perspective. <laughs> yeah, we could probably tie that <laughs> we'll in. We'll work some evolution into it for sure. We'll work some evolution into yeah. it. But yeah, but if I'm driving and my car is basically on autopilot, auto steer, and someone cuts me off, I don't care. It doesn't bother me. I'm not going to take it personally. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm not
1: invested in the behavior of my car. Oh, How about that thing where you signal you're going to change lanes and the guy behind you speeds up? Because yeah. like, oh, you're not getting ahead of me, dude.
0: Yeah. What? That's, you... that's what prompted the shooting that was written up in the Albuquerque Journal.
1: It was something like that. I think that we probably shouldn't give guns to two-year-olds and we sh- probably shouldn't give guns
0: to people with the emotional maturity of
1: two-year-olds.
0: And yet we do. But yeah, the road rage example, that's an example of kind of competition gone awry. The fact that younger males are overrepresented in the population that does these road rage kinds of interactions. This is going to mess you up on editing, but my phone's been ringing nonstop for a few minutes. So yeah. I better see if it's an emergency. Better. You? You up. Oh. It's one of those. Ah. All right. And who's calling you? And how angry does that make you feel? I'm very angry. Yeah. Yeah,
1: had I, had I butt-dialed someone, it would be totally
0: excusable. But when a robot butt-dials me, I get angry. That's self-deception, right? Oh, you know what? <laughs> that the was things, a robot
1: butt-dial. Right.
0: right. The things that make us mad. We work in the ER, and I was with one of my colleagues yesterday. One strategy that made my colleague absolutely furious is they called the MSEP phone. Oh, I can see why that would make him All right, furious. So this is the medical control phone that paramedics call in. From the field to talk to one of the physicians to get a little bit of advice about what to do, one of these telemarketers that was trying to recruit physicians called in the to the MCEP phone. The nurse got the doc, put him on the line, and she went into her recruitment spiel. And he said, "Wait a second! Didn't you tell the nurse that you were calling in about some supposed?" EMS? Oh, he knowingly lied about why he called. Yeah, and gave a false story to the nurse so they would get the physician on the line. I'm other, pretty sure there's a legal action to be taken. There's got to be. There's got to be. Anyway, yeah. he just tore this recruiter yeah. a new one telling the story he got got angry. I think the, the illegal legal people should go after that company. So yeah, but so we live in this this crazy world now where this signaler receiver relationship which has been tuned in some ways by evolution certainly raises brand new opportunities for exploitation and deception internet, telephones and texts that we get. And think about this. We evolved
1: to lie to others to gain an advantage. But we evolved to detect lies in order to prevent being taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is an this, arms race. It's an it's arms race. Kind of we evolved to deceive ourselves in order to better deceive others, according to the thesis of this paper. Right. And in the process of evolving to deceive ourselves, we evolve to be deceived. So at the very same time, we're when, trying when to we're evolve doing it strategies to ourselves to fool other to avoid being fooled by other people, we're evolving strategies to permit us to fool ourselves. And of course the best con men and liars and politicians learn to play to our self deceptions. That's
0: a really important insight. Yeah, it's scary as hell, isn't it? Yeah. Competition between individuals in this communication environment where we're trying to convey information and maybe gain the upper hand has led to a arms race. And that has led in part, to the capacity for self-deception. Evolution has created a brain in which we're no longer seeing the world through a, the correct lens. Now, the most common, the most universal and oldest theory for
1: this, the one that I have tended to subscribe to, is that many of our cognitive biases are the result of heuristics that work in a world where you can't get large data sets. You know, the first time you pet the wrong animal, you die right so we just don't pet things that don't look like us or dogs right okay um if you taste something and then you get sick afterward you're never going to taste that thing again uh, my wife once had a uh, raw spinach salad and got sick afterward maybe the salad did it maybe it didn't but she won't even look at spinach note to self. 20 years later don't you know? make a spinach salad for when cheryl comes over. don't make a spinach salad if cheryl's coming over <laughs> she won't touch it um and we're built that way, you know. A single taste is enough in, in rats and dogs and other species that have been tested. That if they feel that if they get sick afterward, they just won't go anywhere near the thing that tastes like that again. Does that work for tequila? <laughs> I worked on me and gin when I was fifteen, right? <laughs> Which was good because now I'm a teetotaler and I'm happier that way. So, you know. good on you. Um, so the notion that these heuristics benefit us in a low data world in a way that they do not work for us so well in a high-data world, is
0: one of the examples of when we change the world to suit us, we were no longer suited to. So that also underlines the point that our brains have not evolved to see the world realistically. Our brains have evolved to create behaviors that enhance our fitness. As Dawkins would say, we serve snippets of DNA. We serve as
1: sentient slaves to insentient snippets of code. Also, another benefit of self-deception is that we can hold on to our worldview when it is threatened. If you, well, I speak from experience here. If my understanding of what most men are like gets rattled badly enough, that's pretty destabilizing for me. If my sense of what is the low bar, like how stupid can we actually be, and when I realized that no matter how low I think that bar is, we can be a lot stupider than that. And I mean ordinary people, you and me, can be way stupider than we like to imagine we could be. It's demoralizing. It's, it's terrifying. It destabilizes the world that I want to live in. Or we can be very smart in one domain
0: and quite <coughs> stupid in another.
1: Yeah, we often think that because we're smart here, we're smart over there.
0: Docs are famous for that, by right. the way. Especially with uh, you know, bad financial decisions.
1: <laughs> yeah. I haven't
0: just done my taxes today this
1: yeah actually financiers think that doctor is the latin word for prey (laughs) so true (laughs) by the way it's the latin word for doctor uh for teacher i should say doctor is the latin word for teacher oh which i I actually love that Mm -hmm. because that is largely how i see our profession is that our job is to help people to optimize their own well-being right I, i never use the word healer because That's a verb that doesn't apply to what we do. We never go out and heal anybody. We help people heal themselves.
0: And much of that is by informing them. Zephyr or zither. You zephyr them, huh? (laughs) You don't habub them? I kid. (laughs) I'm going to habub them. Moving right along. All right. (laughs) You're going to get in
1: trouble habubing people. I love the new word I learned. Right. Yeah, say. Um, Also, One of the big survival traits of humanity, one of the things that makes us, and here even I'll agree, we are different from other species in this regard, is that we need answers. Why are things like they are? How do things work? What will happen next in this environment? What can I predict about the future and take actions now to prevent a future harm? That is the thing that our species rocks compared with every other species. And I will say... Mm -hmm. As a trend, as a species trend, some of us are better at it than others. But it is the thing that we do that, as far as I can tell, other animals do very little of. Some, nuts, you know, squirrels hide away nuts for the winter and things, but we do that more than any other critter, and in a more organized way. Mm -hmm. That craving to have answers is so intense in us
0: that a bad answer will satisfy us if we can't get a good answer. To the extent that we really want answers, we want answers for things that are reproductively salient things that have importance with survival and reproduction. Yeah, I
1: think not dying is a big part of reproducing. Yeah, Or at least not dying too yeah. early. You can't get a Darwin award if you reproduce before you do the dumb thing. Mm-hmm. Locus of control is another area of self-deception, although I'm not convinced this one is a positive one. This looks more like a glitch than a feature to me. But if something happens to me Somebody is responsible. And I have had days when something really good happens to me and I want to thank someone. And there's no one to thank. It just happened to be real. The weather was beautiful. Um, a, a puppy came up and
0: adopted me, something like that. And I want to, like, thank the world, and there's nobody to thank. There's this sense of agency. Well, the opposite can be quite harmful when we think there's a world full of witches or people giving us the evil eye, right? Yeah, Where the there has to be a human who's responsible for all of our misfortunes. Or if you
1: hurt my feelings or cause me harm... Mm -hmm. Inadvertently, I want to make you responsible. Like, if you hadn't had a car accident on the way to work today, I wouldn't have had to cover your shift. And if I hadn't had to cover your shift, I wouldn't have got tuberculosis. It's your fault that I got tuberculosis. You have TB coffee? (laughs) I had no idea. (laughs) Yes, I have too much brain. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: All right. um, So we, we feel the need to assign credit or blame when often those are just not relevant to what's happening in the world. So the agency bias is one of the self-deceptions that at least as I view it seems to do more harm than good.
0: The idea that most of these biases reflect underlying evolutionary rules or tricks of the trade um, suggests that there may be some benefit to some of these processes even when it appears that they are hugely harmful. But
1: essentially the idea that Yes, this trait does harm, but it does more good than harm in a large statistical Mm -hmm. sense. And you're right, I can't evaluate that for the agency bias. I do think it's likely that the agency bias was important in a world where you only get one or two chances to get it right. Then assuming agency is safer than not assuming agency. That rustle in the woods is probably the wind, but if it's a
0: leopard, I better run. Yeah, Uh, that's known as the smoke detector principle. Yeah. The idea is that many, many false alarms... Are better than not responding when there's a true fire. But now one that at least in the modern world
1: seems unambiguously problematic to me. George Lakoff is uh, somebody I enjoy a lot. He's written uh, The Political Mind is a popular summary of his uh, research. He's an early adapter, a functional MRI, by the way, in studying human cognitive processes. Oh, wow. If you think about it, the, the, when Nixon says, oh, I am not a crook, or when uh, Clinton says, at no time did I ever have sex with that woman, those should feel exactly the same to you. They don't. If you're a liberal, Clinton got totally railroaded, and Nixon should have gone to jail. If you're a conservative, Nixon got totally railroaded, and Clinton should have gone to jail. But if you were as objective as you think you are... Your brain should have reacted exactly
0: the same way to both of those events. So what bias or what evolved bias would be responsible for this?
1: This would be the confirmation bias. If I have a worldview that conservatism is right and liberalism is wrong, then the conservative guy got railroaded when the liberals caught him with his pants down. But if I have a worldview that liberals are going to destroy the world and conservatives so I said it the wrong way around, uh, that the liberals are going to save the world and that conservatives are fascist jerks, well then, clearly Clinton just was absolutely pillaged for a minor infraction, whereas Nixon got a pass when he should have gone to jail, right? And so what we're doing is preserving our understanding of the world because the cost of change can be high having to rethink my prior strategies, having to build a whole new set of friends because I'm going to alienate my old ones if I change my perspective.
0: And that was mentioned in the Trivers paper also, the idea that people tend to seek out information that confirms their biases. We know this is true. Mm -hmm. Explains why, depending on one's political persuasion, you'd watch Fox News or read the New York Times.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: And unfortunately, how do you know what's
1: objective? What most of us do is we judge... Uh, wisdom or objectivity by is that the same conclusion I reached but since all of us are working through a haze of biases that's not a very good yardstick all that means is that we think people are objective if their biases line up with ours so what should we do about this is there anything to do about it reality checking yeah is one strategy go out and actually fact check things when we're debating with someone else, there is a well-established rule that... So you and I are arguing about whether Mount Everest is taller or Mount McKinley, okay? Yeah, I know damn well it's Everest, but okay. We're arguing about which one is taller. Before we go look it up, let's agree on a source. Would you accept uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica yeah, can you yeah, Can you imagine Wikipedia? living in a world where you can't just confirm these kinds of things immediately? Well, <laughs> I grew up in one like that. <laughs> And so arguments would drag on interminably. It didn't. But the idea is you agree on what would be an authoritative source before you go look at the answer. Uh, presently, I think that political facts and fact check are doing a pretty good job of not being partisan. But there are a lot of people for whom facts simply don't matter.
0: There are, Yeah. It was hugely scary. You know, There's another a paper, or a paper, an article, written in the New York Times that looked at this recent near miss in uh, over Kashmir between Pakistan and India, that the Indians supposedly bombed some terrorist training camp, at least in their mind, and the Pakistanis then shot down a plane, massive misinformation, fake news, things totally out of control on both sides where there was very little ability to do fact-checking or to have any sense about what was actually going on, and it was proceeding very rapidly down the path towards war. Uh, which is very scary when you have two nuclear-armed powers. Yes,
1: and I will say that I've, had, I've learned through experience that I've been present for events that later people describe in completely... Like, you just can't even believe they're describing the same event. And they're both telling the truth as they understand it. It's not that one side is lying and one side is telling the truth. That happens too, of course. But I'm talking about times when two people look at the exact same event and
0: perceive entirely different phenomena. And that's not a bit rare. Yeah, so these are some of the examples where things can go off the rails and lead to some very, very harmful circumstances. And we're not quite even sure what to do about it with with something like what happened with India and Pakistan. But in our line of work, we are interested in the truth, or at least the more accurate perception of the truth. That's why science is science, and that's the methodological way to get more towards truth and reality
1: yeah the aspirational goal of science is to find truth that doesn't mean that we have found it all or that we're ever going to find it all or yeah, that we're, we're always successful
0: and we know that it's, it's, it's an impossible task and there may not even be a, a truth at least with our limited human capacity to understand it because of all these things and it's more like discussing. a compass
1: direction than a destination. We're going go. that away way and we're going to keep
0: going as long as we can. Yeah, so we do hope that science, if performed correctly, will, the long arc of science, will tend to bend more towards truth or reality. You asked about mitigation strategies. To paraphrase, Here's paraphrase a couple. MLK. One is
1: that when you disagree with someone else, realize you're disagreeing with them by exactly the same margin they're disagreeing with you. If that was a difficult sentence, replay that a couple of times. When you disagree with someone else, they are exactly as different from you as you are from them. And if you expect them to give you permission to believe what you believe, you have to give them per- permission to believe what they believe. Are they're you giving not, marital advice? They're not more different than you from you than you are from them. Right. And so when you explore that, when you open with, tell me about that, rather than why are you so stupid opportunities arise to begin to understand each other. And here's the other thing. I'm I'm recruiting the listeners to help me get a meme started. All right. Often, when we talk about things we disagree with, I like Chevy, you like Ford or something, right? Mm -hmm. We want the other person to say, you're right, Chevy is better. Instead, let's form a habit. Let's actually formalize, as a way of concluding these discussions, thank you for giving me so much to think about. What I have found in my life is that when people change my mind, which is not rare, it doesn't happen during the conversation. It happens when I go home and think for a few days Mm -hmm. about all of the points that both of us made, and maybe I do a little fact-checking and homework and things like that. And then I realize, you know what, I was wrong, and they were. it happened today. One of my students uh, brought up sweat. Have you heard of this, being allergic to your own sweat? No. We were talking about allergies, and the student brought this up, and I was Mm -hmm. like, I haven't heard that. It sounds improbable to me. Mm -hmm. She was immediately like... I would have the exact same reaction. Yeah. She was immediately like, no, I'm going to win on this. You know? (laughs) Like, she went right to go for the pin. You know, this this became an instant contest of wills, right? Right. And I was like, well, I've been surprised before, but at the moment that sounds unlikely to me. Mm -hmm. Well, I did my homework since yesterday and today, and yep, there is actually such a thing. Um, There's a little bit of debate about is it the bacteria in the sweat that are, have antigens in them, or is it proteins that we secrete that are stimulating our skin
0: immune response? Or? So, in one of these people, can you take sweat from one part of the body and then apply yep. it to some other part of the skin and elicit a response? Exactly that. Yeah. Wow. I looked it up on up to date today. Uh, so, what was your search term? Allergic sweat.
1: Yeah. Sweat allergy was my search term, sweat allergy. Okay, folks, you can look this up at home. But the point is, had I committed to, well, that can't be right, which was what I thought, we mm-hmm. would have just been sparring.
0: Yeah.
1: Or had I insisted, had either of us insisted on agreement at the end of that conversation, nothing productive would have happened. But by giving myself permission to withhold judgment until I could think about it and follow up on it, I now have a more correct understanding. I've learned something about the world that I didn't know before that
0: little debate occurred. Yeah. The scientific method might help us get better at ascertaining what the truth is. But the other job, especially in an environment like where we work, is that of persuasion. And we, sh- we should use some science-informed ways to persuade. And immediately turning the other person uh, against you is not going to be the way to win an argument or to persuade somebody.
1: Well, so this brings up the idea of commitment statements, and um, so if I if I say to you, "Don't you agree that there would like that a person could be allergic to their own sweat?" Hell no! And you say no, it's going to be hard to convince you because now you've heard yourself make a commitment statement, and right. you'll suffer cognitive dissonance if you go to change your mind. Right. So I should begin with this idea got raised to me. I don't know if it's true or not. Have you heard anything about it? You know, is that exactly what you said? I hope it is. We can rewind
0: the tape. That leaves the space open for us to consider it without forcing one of us to dig in our heels. Yeah. I was also going to say that whenever there's some crazy, appearing, counterintuitive result like that, like the idea that you could be allergic to your own sweat, I guarantee the microbiome's involved. <laughs> in this case, the skin microbiome, right? Right, Yeah.
1: yeah. We don't usually talk about skin microbiomes, but they're important, too. They are. On balance, there do seem to be some plausible reasons why cognitive illusions, at least some of them in some circumstances, may have had survival value in an evolutionary sense, and some of them likely still do. We didn't really talk about illusions today. We really focused on delusions. Mm -hmm. Uh, On another occasion, we might talk about illusions, but I also think there are some that simply represent hardware limitations and are not a function of... uh, an evolved strategy for survival
0: but simply imperfect hardware well we've talked a lot about how there are trade-offs and so it may be that to be very very good at detecting some sort of deception that's going to lead to some blind spots in other ways Mm -hmm. nothing comes for free
1: nothing comes for free So
0: great great conversation i am excited to talk about autonomous cars next time too cool cool it's an interesting topic thanks so much joe (laughs) and with that we will sign off and we'll catch you dear audience next week thank you copy